one of our home group leaders, Deacon, also you see him up here leading worship uh, as well. So grateful, Dave. Thanks for uh, your leadership in those areas. Well, good morning again. My name is Jeff, and I'm one of the pastors here. I have the joy of opening up God's Word uh, with you this morning. Again, if you are worshiping with us maybe for the first time here today, we're especially glad that you are here and uh, we'll continue to trust that the Lord will really minister to your heart this day. One of the things we really value here at GCF is hospitality. That gets worked out in a number of different ways, certainly in more formal ways in our home groups. Every week, people are meeting in homes, oftentimes eating together. Uh, Lots of informal times as well, coffee dates, things like that. Uh, This afternoon, right after our service here, in fact, we've got a chance to share some hospitality with at least some of you. We're having a newcomer's lunch, which is right through those doors in the fellowship hall. That'll begin right around noon. Uh, Count on 45, 50 minutes. It's informal. And so I want to invite you, if you are new or newer to us here, and I'll let you determine what that means, uh, we'd love for you to come. Even if you didn't sign up, if maybe you just showed up to church today, that is totally fine. We have plenty of food for you and uh, we'd love a chance just to get to know you. So again, real informal. You'll, you'll walk away with at least a chance to get a book or two, and uh, we'll have a chance just to get to know one another. So uh, consider that your personal invitation uh, for that newcomer's lunch. If you have your Bibles, turn to the uh, Gospel of Mark, Matthew, Mark. We're in Mark chapter 10 this morning. Mark chapter 10, and our text is verses 1 through 12. As we continue here in what Jesus has put before us, a very long course of discipleship, what it means to follow him as his disciple, as him being the true king. Mark chapter 10, if you're able to, please stand, and I'll read Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Our great God and heavenly Father, we need your help this morning. We we don't want to just bide our time here. We don't want to just look for the next thing in the service, look to the end of the service, think about lunch, think about what the afternoon holds for us. But we are here and we want to listen and we need to listen. And so I pray that you would speak to us. Work through me, give me words to speak, give all of us ears to hear. Father, this is 
This is not a lecture. This is not a convenient message. This is not a nice talk. This is your living and active voice speaking to us. So change us, I pray, that we would be transformed more and more, little by little, by the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Please do this, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There are few issues that require more pastoral sensitivity and wisdom than the issue of divorce. Getting it wrong could have enormous consequences, not just for the people and the families involved, but certainly repercussions could be enormous for a church like ours, for an ongoing ministry of the gospel, and for our gospel witness. Every person in this room has or will be affected in some way by divorce. Perhaps you have experienced the pain yourself, uh, the pain of of a marriage that ended in divorce and you still feel like a second-class Christian. It could be that your parents divorced decades ago, yet you still bear those scars all these years later. Perhaps it was, and it is, maybe your your best friend's marriage that crumbled, or even right now you find yourself walking with a loved one or a friend whose marriage is on the brink of divorce, and it brings up all sorts of questions for you. Some of you may be here this morning listening to hear if I think that God thinks your divorce was acceptable or that your parents' remarriage was biblical. One sermon on divorce It's not going to answer all of your questions. It's not going to answer all of my questions either because all of these situations require tremendous wisdom because it's not always clear exactly what the correct counsel is and what is the way forward. Every circumstance, every situation of divorce is unique. It's always layered. It's complex. It's painful, heart-wrenching, gut wrenching. And so certainly as elders, as pastors, discerning what is true and what is not, what is sin and what is not, what is a biblical ground for divorce, what might not be, that's why we enter into these situations with the utmost humility and patience and courage. So let me just say right up front here, to the divorced, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. I don't want you to run from Jesus, and I don't want you to run from his people, the church. I want you to find that the same grace and mercy that I'm trusting in and that we're all trusting in for every circumstance and season of life is available to you. To those considering divorce, considering it long enough that that you've actually thought about it, slow down. Please don't attempt to make a decision like that apart from brothers and sisters, a church family who loves you, who wants to encourage you, who wants to help. Don't struggle alone. We live in a culture that is constantly discipling us. I don't need to tell you that, and particularly on this issue of divorce, the the, the wisdom that we get is, look, live for yourself. If your needs aren't met... Well, that's her problem or his problem. Look out for number one. 
And none of us are immune from just hearing this and receiving this and even believing it to some extent. And so that is why, brothers and sisters, just as we did last week, we need to hear Jesus speaking about divorce. We need to hear the voice of Jesus speaking about remarriage. And the words of Jesus here in our text in Mark chapter 10 bring sanity and wisdom and grace in a world where it's, all of that is lacking. And so surrounded as we are by more and more by falsehoods and confusion and lies and half-truths about this issue of divorce and remarriage, the words of Jesus here in Mark 10 bring sanity and wisdom, yes, and grace to our hearts. So that's my simple prayer this morning. I want you to be able to see the wisdom and the sanity and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ right here in this difficult text in Mark chapter 10. So what I want to do then is just walk us through this. I'm going to include some other relevant scriptures that will be helpful in our understanding here. And along the way, I'm going to draw out five unifying principles that I trust will bring sanity and wisdom and grace to our hearts, to our lives, and yes, if you're married, to your marriage. Let me set the scene. Here's the context. Verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Now, the ministry of Jesus in Galilee has ended, and so now Jesus is back in King Herod's territory. Yes, that Herod that we learned about in Mark chapter 6, that Herod who married Herodias, but that was a bad deal. John the Baptist objected to that, to his divorce. John said, you're breaking the law. You should not remarry. And remember what happened to John the Baptist. Herod had him killed because of that. So this is the region where Jesus is. So the stakes are admittedly high here. And so the crowds are pressing in, wanting to hear what Jesus has to say about divorce. I mean, will Jesus be as strict as clearly John was? Is Jesus going to suffer the same fate as John did? Now, we know from some in the crowd that they are actively seeking to trap Jesus, verses 2 through 4. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, well, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, this is clearly a trap set by the Pharisees to trick Jesus. Incidentally, uh, there are four times in the Gospel of Mark that this verb to trap or to test is used. Three times it's used by the Pharisees. The only other time it's actually used by Satan in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, in the wilderness as he tempted to try and, and trap Jesus. The Pharisees here are not seeking an honest answer. It's not like they were looking at their Bibles and wrestling through this and said, you know who we ought to ask on this? We should go to Jesus because he knows everything. That's not it at all. They're not seeking clarification from Jesus on a touchy subject. This is a satanic attempt to trap him, 
to get him to admit to something, to say something or do something that would absolutely derail his ministry so that people would just think he's a nut job. So the Pharisees ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And like a good teacher often does, Jesus answers their question with one of his own. Well, what did Moses say? The Pharisees said, well, Moses allowed a man to divorce his wife. In other words, yeah, we read what Moses said, Jesus. Do you agree with Moses? Are you going to agree with Moses? Because Moses says it's, it's all good. Now, everyone, we need to understand, everyone in Judaism at this point in time agreed that divorce was permissible. The debate and the controversy was over what grounds or on what grounds could one get a divorce. So uh, whether or not a person could be granted a divorce, that was not in question. The big deal was over legitimate grounds. So here's our first principle. Principle number one. Divorce is not always sinful. Even the Pharisees understood that. So is every divorce a product of sin? Yes. But is every divorce therefore sinful? No. There are several Old Testament texts, Isaiah 50 being one, Jeremiah 3, where we read that the Lord divorced his own people. Jeremiah 3 verse 8, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and I sent her away because of all of her adulteries. God's people were spiritual adulterers and so the Lord, after putting up with them for generation after generation after generation, finally said enough. You've broken the covenant for the last time. I am writing you your certificate of divorce. Now, of course, in the gospel the good news of the gospel, the, the exceedingly good news of the gospel is that God still woos his wayward bride back to himself and welcomes her home if she repents and turns from her sins. But if the Lord can at least metaphorically divorce his adulterous spouse, then divorce must not always be wrong. I'd ask you to consider the, just the Christmas story as well. This is kind of one of those details that Every Christmas we, we get to, we kind of can easily skate over it. Remember Joseph, who was engaged to Mary, found out that she was with child. And the text says, Matthew chapter 1, because Joseph was a just, a righteous man, unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved in his mind to do what? To divorce her quietly. Now Joseph and Mary were legally betrothed, and in the first century that was binding. But Joseph was considered righteous for wanting to divorce her quietly. So divorce is not always sinful. Is every divorce a product of sin, the result of sin? Yes, it is. More on that in just a bit. What I want you to see here, though, with the Pharisees, their, their sticking point here, their big deal in trying to trap Jesus was to get him to say, wait a minute, do you agree with Moses or not? Because Moses absolutely allowed this. And that's why Jesus says, well, what really, is that what Moses really did say? Well, let's find out what Moses said. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, 
And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. After she has been defiled for that, it is an abomination before the Lord, And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, there is a whole lot in there, but really, the key phrase is actually in the first verse. And the key phrase here is some indecency, because he has found something indecent, some indecency. Now, that is a very ambiguous phrase, and the Jews argued about it. Constantly. They argued about it so much that there developed two rabbinical schools of thought. The first, the more traditional conservative school, was the school of Shammai. And they held that divorce was biblical only in cases of adultery. So it was a very strict, narrow view. The more liberal school, it was the school of Hillel, they honed in and emphasized the something indecent. And in in their minds, a man could divorce his wife for for almost any reason at all. She burns supper again. She's no longer attractive to me. The house is always a mess. Now, it's interesting, in the parallel account, Matthew chapter 19, picks up on this. Matthew records this, Matthew 19, verse 3. It reflects this ongoing debate within Judaism because the question there that the Pharisees ask is, Jesus, we want to know whether divorce is allowed for any and every reason. Now, what we'll see here is that Jesus obviously sides with the much more conservative school of Shammai here. We have to understand the point that Moses was making back in Deuteronomy 24. Those words there are sane. Moses' words are wise. And they're absolutely full of grace. Because what he was intending to do then in Deuteronomy 24 was to create a a legal barrier to men sinning as they pleased and just abandoning their wives for any and all reason. Just walking out. So it was actually intended in part to protect the rights of women And it was intended to restrict divorce, to to restrict the ease with which a divorce could be granted. That's the correct interpretation here. But the Pharisees, they're not all that interested in exactly what Moses said, are they? Well, they're looking to trap Jesus. Really, what the Pharisees are doing, they're looking for a loophole. Hey, Jesus... When can we get out of a really hard marriage and still be considered righteous? Hey, Jesus, how far can we go? How how far can we push here on this whole divorce thing and still maintain our status in the community and still have others come to us with all kinds of spiritual questions because we know the answers? I mean, the Pharisees here are really not interested in what Jesus has to say about divorce. All they're looking for is a loophole. What they really want to find out is, hey, when can we get out of our marriage? Give us that loophole, Jesus. That's what we're after. So the attitude of the Pharisees here, really, the heart attitude, it'd kind of be like you getting a loan from the bank 
And before you walk out of the bank, you turn around and you start asking the banker, what happens if I don't make a payment? What happens if I miss payments for three months? What happens if I never make any payments at all? Like, what are the consequences of that? If you're looking for loopholes, you're not looking in the right place. If your heart is set on loopholes and what grounds can you get a divorce, well, you're not thinking of the right thing. And if you are married here and you're thinking, how do I get out of this hard marriage? When can I leave? How can I get out without too much damage to me, to my children, to my family? Jesus says, you are on the wrong track. You're asking the wrong questions. Verse 5, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you, Moses, this commandment. So here's principle number two. Divorce is permitted by God, but never required or commanded. Divorce is permitted by God, but never required or commanded. The Bible nowhere commands divorce. What does it do? It permits it, it regulates it, it limits it. And notice the reason that Jesus gives here. Because, Pharisees, because of you and all who are like you, because of your hardness of heart. I mean, the Pharisees just assumed, they thought, look, we got, a, we got the interpretation of Moses here. Hey, it's required, it's commanded. If the wife burns supper for the fifth time in a row, we can just walk away. But Jesus here sets them straight. Divorce is a concession from God because of the hard human heart, because of your hard human heart, Pharisees. Divorce is a divine concession from God because of our hard hearts. Hard hearts, brothers and sisters, cause people to persist in sin and do nothing about it. Hard hearts make it really hard to forgive one another, don't they? Nowhere do we see this as much as in marriage. And so what Jesus says here is sane. It's wise. And it actually is full of grace because Jesus takes into account the hard human heart. Some human hearts refuse to change. Remain hardened. Just get even more hard and sadly die with a hard heart rather than change. Now traditional Protestant teaching really held by down through the centuries by most, not all, but by most evangelicals has been that the Bible permits a biblical divorce on two grounds. Sexual immorality Sometimes adultery is included in that. Obviously, it's included in that. And the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. Sometimes that's known as the desertion clause. Those two grounds. In both cases, the marriage covenant has been severed. In the first case, because sexual intimacy has taken place with somebody else. In the second instance, because one spouse has abandoned. They have left the marriage in some way. Both of those biblical grounds, brothers and sisters, result from the same hard heart, from a hard heart that refuses 
to change. And so on that first ground, sexual immorality, we need to hear the words of Jesus in this companion text in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. We read what Jesus says here. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus says, hey, no divorce, but here's the exception clause. So this is what is known as the exception clause. No divorce except for marital unfaithfulness. That's the word porneia, where we get our word pornography and all manner, really, of sexual immorality. Now, it's interesting that Mark, as we read here, Mark doesn't include that exception clause, doesn't he? Commentators think, and I would agree here, that the working assumption was that Mark, he assumed that. I mean, he already knew that adultery, that the penalty was, was death, so he didn't need to include it here. So according to Jesus, divorce is not allowed for any reason whatsoever, like the school of Hillel, but only for marital unfaithfulness, like the more traditional school of Shammai said. And the reason is because sexual sin breaks the marriage covenant. Because sex is like the, the oath signing of the covenant. It's the seal. So having sexual experiences with someone other than your spouse is like trying to su- sign on someone else's dotted line. It breaks the covenant and is biblical ground for divorce. Now, even in situations like this, divorce is not required, it's not commanded, but it is biblically permissible. It is allowed. The second biblical ground concerns the issue of abandonment, uh, marital abandonment, desertion by an unbelieving spouse. And Uh, This is the Apostle Paul's logic in 1 Corinthians 7. Now read verses 12 through 16. Paul says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now what he means there is that this command is not from the lips of Jesus himself, but uh, it's still a command that we need to follow. Paul says that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, She should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be as unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife? whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So here's that second biblical ground, abandonment or desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Now, of course, we should try to live at peace with this unbelieving spouse. Reconciliation is always the goal. It's always the ideal. But Paul's saying here, if the unbelieving spouse leaves, we'll let him do so. You're not bound to be married when your unbelieving spouse deserts you. So again, those two biblical grounds, porneia, sexual immorality, adultery, and abandonment, desertion, both of those, brothers and sisters, arise from the same hard or hardened or continually hard heart. So the elders here at GCF would affirm this biblical position 
In the last year, we have brought a, a few updates to our policy on divorce and remarriage. I want to make sure and encourage you to read it. We've got several copies in the Fellowship Hall. We can certainly make more copies of that. But one of the updates over the last year, and this was through a considerable amount of prayer and counsel and thinking on God's Word, uh, was with this second clause of abandonment, of desertion. What, what might that include? And we determined that this kind of abandonment, this desertion, could, not always, but could include situations where the spouse is still physically present. So in other words, really over the, the, the more strict traditional view would say, okay, if the spouse is just up and leaves, walks away, well, that's abandonment, yes. What about if that spouse is in jail? That's abandonment, yes. But what we're saying is that it could, but not always include situations where the spouse is still physically present, but has irreparably severed the marriage covenant. This could be, not always, but it could be in extreme situations of abuse, unrepentant and unrelenting abuse. Could be wanton neglect, a failure over and over and over again that is tantamount to the abandonment of marital vows. So perhaps, perhaps a guy is strung out on drugs, doesn't really see any need to change, doesn't change. Or has gambled away all the family possessions and continues to gamble away all the family possessions or has a 25-year porn addiction that he's not willing to give up. Again, all of these situations are heart-wrenching and gut-wrenching, and they need to be dealt with individually, but the elders are sympathetic to these sorts of situations. It may be that there are grounds for a biblical divorce under this second clause of abandonment. I would simply add that in situations, very complicated and messy situations, obviously, even still... Divorce is always the last option. And there's a whole process that often in situations like this include separation, physical separation, among many other wise and prudent actions. So again, brothers and sisters, this second principle, divorce is permitted by God, but it's never required, never commanded. It is a divine concession because our hearts are hard. And so both of these biblical grounds for divorce arise out of a hard heart. Do you know that nobody gets married with a soft heart? I mean, we like to think so, and I'm really sorry to burst your romantic bubble on this Valentine's Day week. I hope it was a great day for you. But when I married Becky, she married a man with a hard heart, and vice versa. And God knows that. That's why, that's why the Bible, that's why this is sane. That's why it's wise. And yes, that's why it is full of grace. The Bible is not written for angels. It's written for sinners. So when you got married, however long ago, and maybe it's been more recent that you got married, it really doesn't matter, two angels did not get married. Two selfish, sinful hard-hearted sinners got married, and you're not going to find that on a Hallmark Valentine's Day card. I actually looked. You don't find that. 
You know what you do find, though, on some Hallmark Valentine's Day cards? Language like this. In you, I found my soulmate. And I'm not making light of that. I guess I am making light of that. I am. Conscience clear. But we talk a lot in our culture about finding your soulmate. Like if it's just, I'm praying for my soulmate. I want to find my soulmate because my soulmate will finally complete me. And so the sense is, like when you finally find your soulmate, well, then you should get married. But evidently, you get divorced because that person who you thought was your soulmate is now no longer your soulmate. And the implication is that my soul is pure and that her soul is pure. And when my pure soul gets together with her pure soul, what could possibly go wrong? Just pure happiness. That's insane. And that's why the words of Jesus here, brothers and sisters, are wise and bring sanity to this just find your soulmate kind of culture. You only marry a person with a hard heart. That's all you got to choose from. So for those of you here who are not married, but one day you hope to be married, you ought to be looking for the kind of person who understands that at some level, who understands that they're entering marriage with a hard, selfish, sinful heart, and they are learning and you are seeing them go to Jesus and repent and confess their hard-heartedness. That's the kind of person you want to be looking for. And if you're married... Your hard heart towards your spouse, that's a really big deal. You might just think of the last week of your life and of your marriage. It can happen so easily and subtly that we don't even know until oftentimes years later. But where where is your heart a little bit hardened towards your spouse? And it may be this morning because you had a fight on the way here. So what do you do about that? Well, you you obey the word of God. You repent, and you do that quickly, and you do that genuinely, and you don't stop repenting of the ways that you've been acting in selfish or sinful ways towards your spouse because you know that a hard heart could kill your marriage. And you don't want that. You would be a fool, and I would be a fool to ignore even the small ways that our hearts have become hard or hardened towards our spouse. Living as a Christian is actually about living radically different, isn't it? It's about living with a soft heart filled with the Holy Spirit. Such a heart, a soft heart, is actually capable of forgiving your spouse of some pretty grievous sins. It's never easy to forgive your spouse. It's not easy, but it is not impossible. God understands our hard hearts. And because he continues to forgive you of your sins, yes, you can forgive your spouse of his or her sins as well. This is the real world we live in. It's a real world of real sin. 
and abuse and adultery and infidelity and abandonment, and God understands that and he takes that into account. And again, that's why divorce is permitted, but it's never required or commanded. Verse six and verse seven. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Isn't this interesting? The Pharisees, what do they want to talk about? They want to talk about loopholes. Jesus, he wants to talk about marriage. The Pharisees want to talk about acceptable reasons for a divorce. Jesus actually wants to talk about the sanctity of marriage. The Pharisees want to talk about when a marriage can be broken. Jesus wants to talk about why marriages should never be broken. So here's principle number three. God's design for marriage is exclusively heterosexual, the union of one man and one woman. God's design for marriage, I'm going to say this again, is exclusively and only heterosexual, the union of one man and one woman. Jesus takes the Pharisees back to God's original intention in creating human beings, that every human being is created in his image. That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And and Jesus takes the Pharisees back to God's intention, his good, wise, sane design for this one, (coughs) excuse me, one flesh union in marriage. Genesis 2, 24. What Jesus says here, brothers and sisters, makes a lot of people angry. God made only two sexes, male and female. You are either a man or a woman. And if you choose to marry, God's expressed design is that a God-honoring marriage is composed of a husband and a wife, a male and a female. Now some, some say, wait a minute, Jesus never spoke about same-sex marriage. Wrong. He does it right here. A man is to marry a female. A female is to marry a man. Now it could be, it could be that perhaps you are here this morning and you feel trapped in the wrong body. I don't know that particular struggle, but if that's you, I know that that is real, and that can be crushing, and you are fighting desires, and the culture around us, and what we hear says just give in to your desires that maybe God made a mistake, or you can determine whoever you want to be. Friend, the path towards true wholeness, wholeness as designed by God who created you, that path to true wholeness is to be at peace and at home with your biological sex. So your sex was not a sign just at birth, or you didn't just discover that years later, or come upon that years later. It is a biological reality, and that biological reality is rooted in the loving kindness of God. Your sex was determined before the foundation of the world. 
from a loving God who created you exactly as you are, who loves you, and who desires that you worship him and honor him. So we want to talk with you. We want to walk with you. We want to help you learn what it means to be at peace with your body as God intends. Now, everything I just said in the last, let's say, three minutes is evidently so controversial and so outlandish that for some, I ought to be canceled, or maybe something worse. And if you agree with the words of Jesus here, then the same thing could happen to you. And yet, at the end of the day, and all throughout the day, what Jesus is saying here, what the text is saying here, what the Bible affirms is sane. It is wise. And yes, it is absolutely full of his grace. Keeping God's word is wise and sane and is full of his grace. I mean, keeping God's word is good for you and for me, especially as it wars against our own desires and our own hard hearts. And it does, every minute of every day. Obeying God's holy desires and wise intentions in marriage, as we think about sexuality, is sane. And yet we understand and we live in sexually broken bodies and broken minds. Every last one of us, as a result of the fall, is sexually broken in some way. And so every last one of us here is, I, I trust, by the power of the Holy Spirit, seeking to put to death sinful and selfish and wayward desires every day. So we have a common struggle. And brothers and sisters, we have a sufficient Savior. We really do. Principle number three, God's design for marriage is only and exclusively heterosexual, the union of one man and one woman. Verse nine, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Here's principle number four. Marriage is a sacred union between one man and one woman and God's intention is for marriage to last a lifetime. Marriage is a sacred union that is meant to last a lifetime. When I was reviewing my notes here, you know how the computers work in spell check. I actually had written, marriage is a scared union between one man. And indeed it is, but that's a whole other sermon. You change one word and a lot, a lot happens there, one letter. Marriage is not a short-term casual contract. It is intended by God to be a lifelong covenant because God is present in marriage. Because God is present in marriage, even the most, the hardest of marriages and the most unholy of marriages, marriage is still something sacred and transcendent and holy because God himself joins the couple together. And what God has put together, no one should separate. So the main thing that Jesus wants to say here about divorce is don't do it. It's not God's intention for marriage. 
verses 10 through 12. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Principle number five. Where divorce was permiss- or sorry, where divorce was not permissible, any subsequent remarriage results in adultery. Let me say that again. Where divorce was not biblically permissible, any subsequent remarriage results in adultery. Now, the, the opposite is also true. If the divorce was biblically permissible, then remarriage is also permissible. Now, the logic here just flows from what Jesus has already said in verses 6 through 9. Divorce is contrary to God's expressed will and intention in marriage. It arises from hard, stubborn hearts. It produces spiritual adultery. So remarriage without biblical grounds in the first place, Jesus says that constitutes adultery. Now, the disciples were having a really hard time with this. Again, in the companion text in Matthew chapter 19, verse 10, the disciples heard this, and they go to Jesus and say, uh, Lord, I don't think anybody should get married then. Hear the point. And this is super serious. If you don't have biblical grounds for divorce, consider what an offense it is to God to break the promises that you made in his name. Consider the harm to your kids. Stay married. If you have been improperly or unbiblically divorced, and yes, you are now remarried, repent of your past sins. Make whatever amends are necessary and stay married. Admittedly, this is where things get really, really complicated and messy. Yes, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. You can be forgiven. But yet you live with those consequences. So if you can look back on your sinful divorce and perhaps sinful remarriage and you think, wow, I'm glad I didn't hear this sermon 15 years ago. That's a really disturbing sign that something is wrong in your heart. That your heart is hard. But if the Spirit of God is at work in your life, then you're able to say, Lord, I didn't see. I was blinded. I'm so sorry. I tarnished the gospel. I tarnished the name of Christ. I was blind. I was ignorant to my sins. Please forgive me. Have mercy on us. A soft heart will do whatever humanly possible to make amends. So you'll not only ask for the Lord's forgiveness, But then you'll also make things right with your ex-spouse and your kids and your parents and your in-laws, anyone that you hurt by your sinful actions. So if you have been sinfully divorced, and maybe it was your sin that really did cause that divorce, friend, run to the cross of Christ. He's your only hope. Run to Christ because there is mercy for you. But you must know your confession has to be real. Your admission of guilt has to be honest. And your repentance must be earnest.
So plead with God. Let me briefly, just in closing, address two other groups of people here. To the married here this morning, stay married. Guard your marriage. Don't think that you are above falling. Don't think that you are above temptation. That's why as husband and wife, you pray together, you engage your hearts together, you get away from the kids together at times. There are few things more precious in this earthly life than your marriage. So don't for an instant take that for granted. If you're here this morning in a really hard marriage, and perhaps in your mind you, you do have biblical grounds for divorce, consider Consider what glory it might be to God to patiently work for reconciliation, knowing that you cannot control your spouse, that you cannot control a hard heart, and yes, the harsh and hard reality is that some marriages do end in divorce. Run to Jesus for mercy. Run to Him. And to the divorced and single... If you had biblical grounds for divorce, well, we want to do everything we can to make sure that nobody looks down on you or treats you with anything less than the compassion and mercy and kindness of Christ. If you have been sinned against, we don't want to treat you as the offending sinner. We want you to find a spiritual home here. Let's pray.